Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 17A, an interview on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson with David O. Stewart. I'm excited to welcome David O. Stewart to the show today. David is a lawyer, historian, and author of numerous books about presidential history, including Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson, and The Fight for Lincoln's Legacy, which is what we're going to dive into today. I should also note, Stewart has himself participated in an impeachment trial. In 1989, he was the principal defense counsel for a U.S. district judge during an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. So he certainly knows a thing or two about impeachment. David, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I'd love to start with a little history on impeachment. Why did the founders create impeachment? You know, like what was its purpose and how did they expect impeachment trials to function if they ever occurred? Uh, It was a straightforward reaction, which is they were creating a presidency, which we had not had uh, anything like that in the states. Um, Certainly at the national level, there was no executive until uh, the Constitution was ratified. They knew they didn't want a king. Uh, so they had to sort of invent this new animal. And they knew that uh, they had a very practical view of human nature that uh, men sometimes go badly, uh, women too. And so they needed uh, a way to remove uh, an unfortunate president. Uh, ben Franklin, with his usual wit and uh, uh, directness observed that, oh, this would be a very good system. That way we don't have to kill him. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were looking for a peaceful, orderly way or, or somewhat orderly way to remove the head of government, which is a big deal. So uh, they borrowed it from uh, English traditions. Uh, they did not borrow it perfectly. Uh, they, they didn't mean to. Uh, they, they, they meant to uh, make it fit the U.S. model. Uh, And uh, it has been confusing to people uh, to figure out what is involved because they said their description of it is very short. Uh, The English precedents are a mess. And uh, by and large, once you get into an impeachment process, nobody, and I'm just being candid here, nobody really cares a lot what the law is anyway. Congress is going to do what Congress is going to do. I'd I'd love to drill a little bit more into this. Do you think that's kind of what the founders intended? Do the founders intend to create this kind of nebulous thing where Congress can do what Congress is going to do? Yes. Hamilton in the Federalist Papers is quite uh, direct in saying uh, impeachment is a political process uh, performed by political men. They delivered the power to elected representatives, uh, both in the House in the first step and then the Senate. And uh, they knew that these folks were going to make a political decision. I mean, who? what else would they do? If they wanted it to be judicial, they would have confided it to the courts. And they recognized that removing the president was going to be a massive political undertaking. And only a body with rival credibility and that would be Congress. That's the only place mm-hmm. uh, could do it. So Johnson was the first president to ever face an impeachment trial. Had anyone before him ever come close? 
Not very. Uh, President Jefferson had thought impeachment would be just a super way to get rid of all the judges that the Federalists had left on the bench. And yeah. he tried that and it didn't really work. So he gave it up. Um, there was an impeachment uh, resolution brought in the House against President John Tyler, who was the first uh vice president to succeed to the presidency upon the death of his, uh, the head of his ticket, mm -hmm. uh, William Henry Harrison. Um, it didn't even get out of the house and it was sort of two to one against, it was not a very serious effort. So Andrew Johnson was the first serious effort and it was a very serious effort. <laughs> uh, what was the national opinion on impeachment like back then in the, the late 1860s? Were, were folks familiar with the concept and rules? Uh, they weren't very familiar with it, no. I mean, uh, lawyers knew about it, constitutional lawyers, but it wasn't something people walked around worrying about. Uh, and uh, it is important to remember that how new everything was. I mean, it, we're... Then it was still, I don't know, 80 years into the Constitution. You know, when Tyler was president in uh, 1840s, uh, they weren't sure if he really was president. You know, was he like the temporary president? Was he, you know, the substitute? But like, they didn't know what to call him. And he kept saying, I'm the president. But nobody knew. And they finally decided, OK, I guess he's the president. <laughs> so the first time you do something, uh, it's confusing. So Johnson, he, he does a lot of upsetting things as president. He provides all sort of cover for white supremacists in the South. He appoints governors who enact black codes. He uh, punishes generals who are trying to protect the freedmen and, and more. When do people first start talking about impeaching him and why? Is, is it these things or what is it that, that brings it uh, to the discussion? The politics of the moment are uh, rancorous. You know, we love to whine about how partisan our politics are, and they certainly are, but the 1860s can match it. Um, and, you know, we went to war, and that's how bad it was. With ourselves. Um, yeah, we killed each other. Uh, so when you come out of the war, um, you need to appreciate that Congress did not include the 11 formerly Confederate states. So that's Johnson's natural constituency. He's a Tennessee Democrat. Uh, who somehow got onto Lincoln's ticket, which is another story. Um, and so his power base is not in Congress. Uh, so what's left is basically Northern uh, Republicans, mostly who are the anti-slavery party and have been, and some Democrats, a few. Um, so those people are really unhappy with him and they are unhappy with him fast. Uh, within a year of him taking over for President Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination, uh, there is already an impeachment movement. It's not terribly serious. Uh, it's sort of fueled by this crackpot who decided that Johnson was responsible for Lincoln's assassination and was a co-conspirator with John Wilkes Booth. Wow. That was not actually true. Right. <laughs> and it became clear it wasn't true. But by the second year, which is 1867, uh, it is a serious movement. And there is an effort to bring an impeachment resolution in the House, largely on the issue of 
uh, entirely on the issue of reconstruction and uh, treatment of the freedmen, the, the freed slaves, uh, and uh, whether their rights are going to be uh, guaranteed, whether they're going to be protected from um, the Southern whites who are eager to restore something very close to the slavery times. How do people react to the, the second, the major one? You know, is this something that uh, takes off to a quick boil? Does it simmer for a while? How does momentum build around it? Well, it, it's sort of a funny two-step process. And, you know, I have to qualify my response because we don't have polls. We don't have, uh, you know, a, a lot of public media. Uh, we have newspapers and, and a lot of them, a lot more than we have today. Uh, and so we read the newspapers, we read people's uh, mail, which is what historians do. And we read uh, uh, speeches that were made. Uh, it seems that there was a lot of dissatisfaction with Johnson and some interest in impeaching him. But the first movement to do it is not terribly well defined. It kind of percolates through the House and it loses mm. uh, in uh, late 1867. Uh, and it loses badly, two to one. Yeah. Uh, as a lawyer, I found it, you know, it would be hard to vote for it. Although as a politician, I probably could have. I mean, was <laughs> essentially this guy's a terrible president. Let's get rid of him. Yeah. Um, but that high crimes and misdemeanors language in the Constitution tends to want make people want to have something specific. And they didn't present it that way. Uh Within a couple of months after that, in early uh, 1868, then you've got a firestorm breaks out because Johnson has finally decided, and I, I'm, it's clear to me, he picked this fight. He meant to have this argument in this fight over impeachment. Um, he had a holdover cabinet member, Edwin Stanton from Lincoln Times, uh, who was undermining his policies in the South, that Johnson was all about giving the Southern whites as much power as he could, as mm. fast as he could. And Stanton really thought that was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, and so he was undermining him uh, as much as he could. And uh, Johnson put up with it for a while. We don't quite know why, because Johnson was a tough guy and yeah. difficult to live with. And But I, uh, Stanton was equally tough and, and <laughs> historically rude and unpleasant. Um, <laughs> yeah. And somehow they coexisted for several years. Um, but then Johnson had had enough and he decided to fire him, but they had changed the law. Uh, this was what the Republicans in Congress did. And uh, they could, he could only get rid of Stanton if the Senate agreed, if they voted to confirm his removal. Yeah. And uh the final clause of the statute, which was thrown in by Thaddeus Stevens, this very smart uh, congressman from Pennsylvania, uh, said, and violations of this statute are high crimes and misdemeanors. So he was not hiding the ball. He, he was so setting him up. Did that literally say that in the law? Like if you violate this law, it's a high crime and misdemeanor? It's the last sentence of the law. Wow. And, you know, so Stevens is basically saying, you know, I dare you. And yeah. uh, Johnson basically said back, I double dog dare you. And so he, he fired Stanton or purported to. Yeah. Uh, 
the Senate would not confirm it. And then uh, Johnson went ahead and tried to remove him anyway, appointed a, an interim secretary of war who, mm. who never actually got in the building because Stanton refused to leave. We had this <laughs> for three months where we had two secretaries of war wandering. Well, one was wandering around Washington going to cabinet meetings and the other was in the war department. He slept there. <laughs> um, and we were only lucky we were not invaded. Yeah. Um, it was... It was, it was preposterous at one level, but it, 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 it galvanized the country. And that was the firestorm. Within days, the House of Representatives voted to impeach. Everybody was so upset that, you know, Trump had been impeached very quickly, you know, just mm-hmm. a matter of days. Well, Johnson got impeached faster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people were even angrier with him. So uh, uh, it, it was a lightning process. It then slowed down on the Senate side. I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Johnson impeachment was they impeached him without any uh, content. They just said he should be impeached. And then like four days later, they wrote in why. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they were in a rush. (laughs) All right. So you've unearthed a lot of things I want to drill a little deeper down into. Um, one is, is even though we've seen so much impeachment news in the past couple of years, in case anybody <laughs> wasn't watching the news, it might be worth reminding my listeners, what is the constitutional basis for impeachment? It's that, it's that line, high crimes and misdemeanors, right? What, what's that mean in your eyes? It is high crimes and misdemeanors, which is, it comes from like the 13th century in Britain. And uh, its meaning is, is very elusive. Um, I spent a lot of time reading, you know, the old, a lot of, most of the cases in Britain are from the 17th century when uh, they were in the process of killing their king and uh, had having serious fights. Uh, and the best I can do with it <laughs> is that it is an abuse of office. Okay. Um, they don't really mean a crime. That's the word high mean, refers to office as opposed to you go off and, and kill somebody on the street. Yeah. Uh, does it have to be a crime? Well, no. Mm. Although our congressmen and senators feel better if it is. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it just makes them feel like they can stand up in front of a crowd back home and say, see, it was a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it have to be an abusive office? Yes. Uh, and so you get into this murky area if some president should wander out of the White House and shoot somebody down on the street because he's in a bad mood, would that be an impeachable offense? You know, maybe it would be. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, again, is just sort of a political decision that this is no longer a worthy person to have as president. And yeah. that is often the best I can do. It is a decision by the political leaders of the country that the president is no longer worthy of holding that office. Thank you so much for that context and background. Um, one of the other things you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is, is you pointed out that there were no polls back then. You know, nobody really knows exactly what the public uh, is thinking. It felt like these past couple of years, that was very much part of the discussion. Like, how will this help us or hurt us politically? So those congressmen back then, how much were they acting from whatever they could divine of the public will? And how much was this just uh, for the congressmen and senators? I'm just going by what I think is right or wrong, you know, my own personal opinion. Well, as soon as we say it's a political process, um, we realize that most of the actors are calculating their political advantage. Okay. So um, 
you know, the Republicans back in the 1860s were trying to figure out would it be better to impeach Johnson and get rid of him or not? Better for the country, better for us. Um, they certainly thought it was better for the country. Um, a lot of them thought it would be better for them. Mm. If they'd have a chance to get somebody else in there who could uh, uh, appoint their friends, uh, just to be crude, who could lay the groundwork for the 1868 presidential election. Mm -hmm. There were some Republicans, though, who thought that it was a terrible idea because it would make Johnson a martyr and would make him sympathetic and would drive votes to the Democrats. So, you know, most uh, political situations, you find that there's more than one way to look at the problem. Yeah. And, and that was the case back then. Um, there, the, there were and I'm getting ahead of the story a little, there are some Republicans who vote to save Johnson. Yeah. And uh, they are often celebrated for their sturdy attention to principle. But some of them were looking at simply, you know, I can probably get reelected better if I vote for Johnson. So, uh, you know, it's human beings. <laughs> it's human beings. So many stories could just end that way. And well, we're human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so you mentioned about how this fight between Johnson and Congress is getting tougher. You mentioned that the passing of the Tenure of Office Act and how Johnson very much was like, I'm, I'm crossing this line on purpose. I'm double dog daring you. Uh, when, when, what was the name of the congressman or senator you said who passed this law? Sorry, I'm blanking on the name. Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens. So when Thaddeus Stevens writes up this law and, and he has this kind of dare in there, do you think he was expecting this law to actually contain Johnson or was he hoping that Johnson would break this law so he could impeach him? Like, what do you think? The was? Stevens was a ferocious man. It's uh, someone in there are very few heroes in this time. For me, Stevens is a bit of a hero um, because he really believed in uh, justice for the freed slaves Mm -hmm. um, and he fought tenaciously for them, and he absolutely wanted uh, Johnson to cross that line. <laughs> he wanted to remove him. He, he wanted to hang him from the nearest yardarm. I mean, he really wanted um, revenge against this man he thought was destroying the country. Got it. So and, very and, clear. Uh, and yeah. we have to remember that this is three years after the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. lot of people are still angry about that war. They've lost loved ones. Um, they feel like Johnson is giving away the victory. What did we go out? What did my husband die for? Mm -hmm. um, you know, just for you to let these people just take over and, and, and be in charge again. So uh, feelings were really high. What were the big defining moments of this trial? Yeah, whether, I guess in the Senate trial uh, or Congress, while well, that was happening, that happened super quick, sounds like, like, were there any bombshell testimonials, any crazy reveals? I, I love this question because there weren't any. Um, <laughs> it, it went on for four weeks. It was the dullest thing ever. Um, and uh, somebody wonderfully wrote, you know, that with which bores us, disgusts us. Um, <laughs> and it had the effect of making the impeachment seem petty and small. Mm. Uh, and if you followed subsequent presidential impeachment trials, and to my dismay, I have, um, <laughs> they are all dull. 
And if you notice it recently, they're trying to make them faster and faster and no testimony because this is the president of the United States. Matters of tremendous public interest and it, everybody knows the facts. They've already been out in the press. They have been explored. You know, now we've had them on Fox News and CNN. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to learn. You're just going to bore people again, which, you know, especially today with our gnat-like uh, <laughs> attention spans, yeah. um, we cannot, you know, be bored. Mm. That's the original sin. So, you know, they had no witnesses in the most recent, recent Trump event. They took yeah. some testimony in the previous one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, even the Clinton case, they got to the Senate, they took a couple of depositions off the floor. I mean, that it, it really has become uh, a, a race to figure out how to compress it and get it over with as fast as possible. And, and you could see, and when you look back at the Johnson trial, you think, oh, they should have done that. <laughs> if they'd only done it in a really couple of days, they might have won. Uh, they might have convicted him. Awesome. And I want to drill back deeper into that in a second. One, one other question I want to hit real quick is who would have become president if Johnson had lost? And was that a factor in any votes? Uh, it's a great question. Um, this, under the statute at the time, it would have been the Senate pro, uh, president pro tem of the Senate, who was Ben Wade of Ohio, who was uh, another crusty former abolitionist. Um, he was famous for daring the Southern slave owners uh, to duels. Um, oh, he, he carried pistols onto the floor of the Senate and stacked them on his table and his desk and said, you know, come and get me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was not universally popular. Uh, yeah. And he also was in favor of women voting, which was thought to be really off the charts um, as a dangerous position. Mm. And there's a famous newspaper story announcing Johnson's acquittal that said uh, Andrew Johnson is still president because Ben Wade is his successor. Um, And it does seem like some of the people who switched, some of the Republicans who switched to vote to save Johnson um, were not happy at the prospect of Ben Wade as president. And he would only have been president for, you know, 10 months Right. The election was coming up. And and some people said, so why are we doing this? We can just vote the guy out. Yeah. So he he ends up surviving by a single vote after seven uh, Republicans vote with the Democrats to acquit. Uh, you mentioned that if this were a shorter trial, maybe it would have happened. What were uh, what did it take for him to get that acquittal? And why did the short time frame help him or the long time frame help him? Well, the long time frame helped him because people got sort of used to the notion that maybe his position hadn't been crazy. You know, he, mm. he took the position that he thought the statute that required Senate approval of removing his secretary of war was unconstitutional, that it diminished the president's powers and was wrong. Um, it was not a crazy position. Yeah. And he even made the more sophisticated or his lawyers made the more sophisticated argument that was even if you think he's wrong about that constitutional issue, it was not an unreasonable view for him to take. And therefore, he did not act unreasonably. And mm. a president who doesn't act unreasonably does not need to be impeached. Mm. It's not a terrible argument. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am no fan of Andrew Johnson, but I will recognize that's not a terrible argument. Um, 
and, and it persuaded a few people. Uh, we've got to be realistic. And my book was, you know, the first one, I think, that really took on this issue as to whether um, uh, votes were purchased in yeah. the Senate. Um, it was a remarkably corrupt time in our politics, uh, this sort of period from, I don't know, 1840 to 1880. Mm -hmm. And um, lots of things were for sale and lots of bribery was going on. So it, it's not startling that it would happen around this. And we could trace that, you know, they were raising funds, uh, <laughs> the acquittal fund for President Johnson. And, you know, they called in this expert, uh, three cabinet members called in this expert on corruption and basically said, so how do we win? And he said, well, it'll cost you 150 grand, but I'm not going to do it for you. Um, and Johnson's personal secretary who was the equivalent of his chief of staff today. That's the yeah. name he would have had. Yeah. Kept a journal about the offers that senators were making oh. when they came in. You know, and they'd, he'd say, well, you know, four votes for 30,000 bucks. Well, there's that one. He didn't put names, but he, yeah. he recorded them. You know, three votes for 40,000. You know, obviously not as good a deal. <laughs> um, and um, there's good evidence that the one, the last vote that saved Johnson, mm -hmm. which was with a, a cast by a senator from Kansas, um, was purchased. Um, we can't put cash in his pocket because in those, you know, wonderful days, everything was cash. So it didn't leave a trace. Sure. Sure. Um, but we do know that two days after he acquitted, he voted to acquit Johnson and saved his job. He immediately asked for the, probably the most corrupt man in America to be appointed head of the internal revenue service, which is, you know, it's like putting the fox in charge of the slaughterhouse. It's not just a chicken coop. It's the, it's the whole place. Yeah. And, and Johnson actually, to his credit, I suppose, drew, drew the line there and only appointed this crook to be head of the customs house in New Orleans, where the man stole a million dollars in less than a year. Yeah. Uh, and when the man found the Perry Fuller was his name, when he finally got indicted, um, the senator stood bail for him. <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful touch. Um, the senator also sent over, uh, this is Edmund Ross, and uh, the corrupt guy, sent over several appointments for Indian agents and people he wanted Johnson to appoint, and he did. Mm -hmm. Those often were corrupt as well. Um, so it's pretty clear to me, and, and he was hanging out with the deal makers, with, with, with the spoilsmen is the term that was often used of the Johnson administration, it's clear to me that he was doing it. And in several books since my book, people are starting to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was pretty dirty. Um, and uh, it, it, did people buy the votes to convict Johnson? I could never rule it out, but I did not find any serious evidence of it. Um, mm. But uh, like I said, I can't rule it out. Got it. Yeah. So, so the first great impeachment trial, hundred <laughs> percent, the the verdict comes down to some corrupt vote buying at the end. It sounds like. Uh, it's hard to avoid that conclusion. Got it. Got it. Um, what is the effect and legacy of this first impeachment trial, both for Johnson and for the presidency? Well, for a century, we didn't want 
impeachments, people became persuaded that they were a bad idea. Um, we, we've gotten over that. <laughs> we're okay with it. Um, and it was thought that at the time it resulted in the uh, neutering the presidency, mm-hmm. that the presidents after Johnson had less power because they were afraid of being impeached. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, to be honest, the president part of it. Johnson were kind of weak anyway. Okay. Um, and they never had much of a mandate. The elections in the late 18th, not uh, late 19th century, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, were very close elections, every one of them. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't butter a lot of parsnips for me. And you get into the 20th century, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, they had no trouble finding power to exercise. Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, it was right there and they grabbed it. So I think it had more to do with the people who were president and also the times, uh, you know, different times required different actions from government or expect different actions from government. And we got into an era, which we are deep into, where people expect the government to do a lot. Mm. And in the 1860s, we didn't expect government to do much. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I don't see impeachment as having framed that very much. And uh, what about the impact on Johnson's legacy and how we remember him? Yeah, his legacy's been a real roller coaster. Um, he was uh, lionized for nearly a century as wow. the man who uh, who saved the presidency, uh, who stood up for principle and uh, uh, fought back the, those those mean old rat, radical Republicans who wanted to hound him out of office uh, and hurt those sweet white Southerners. Wow, um, and. When you get into the 1950s with the civil rights movement, there's this sort of sea change, which takes a few decades of people saying, gee, you know, Johnson was actually sort of a creep and he did (laughs) terrible things. And, you know, the Reconstruction was was a very unfortunate episode. And the freed slaves still, you know, their descendants still don't have the rights they should have. So it has Pardon me. He, he had a, a great several innings there at the beginning. And <laughs> now his reputation is pretty terrible. He's been at the bottom of the presidential rankings, and, and I mean the bottom, yeah. um, for uh, quite a while. He, he may get a run now uh, from Trump, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, last question for you is, what is your personal take on the process of impeachment, both as a historian and someone who has participated in an impeachment trial? Do you think it succeeds at what it sets out to do? Or are there any changes that you think need to be made for it to serve whatever purpose the founders envisioned for it? I I don't have a better one at hand, um, (laughs) but there's no question that this is not an effective or useful uh, tool. Um, mm-hmm. It has become simply an instrument of rage. Um, when, you know, the, it only arises now when we have divided government, when Congress has, is in one party's hands and the presidency is in the other party's hands. Mm-hmm. And the president does stuff Congress doesn't like, and they can't stop him. 
So the only thing they can come up with is to impeach him. Uh, and they can't actually make that happen because they don't have a big enough margin. So it's a giant distraction. And uh, is it a useful safety valve uh, for, for our rage? Maybe. Uh, should we have some way of removing a really evil president? Yeah, I do think we should. You know, mm -hmm. the four-year term should not be inoculation uh, against doing terrible things. I mean, you should, if you do terrible things, you should, th there has to be, you know, a consequence. And the only one that matters is to get that person out of office. So we should have something like this, but we need to recognize that it's not effective Pardon me. And, um, you know, that you could reduce the, <coughs> pardon me, the two thirds vote requirement, but I'm not sure I would. I think you want to have the whole nation uh, want to remove the presidency. President, it shouldn't just be mm -hmm. a simple majority. So uh, I, I don't admire it. I, I think it's unfortunate in many respects, but, you know, like a lot, in democratic government, um, <laughs> it, it's it's not as bad as it might be without it. David, I really appreciate all of your uh, insight and and time that you shared with me this morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from David, he has a number of books out there that you can read, including "Impeached: The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy." Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on Apple uh, Podcasts. It's always good to hear from you all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, the man who will go from unemployed veteran selling firewood on the street corner to union hero and president of the United States. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.